and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Agnes Callard, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. We will discuss her book, Aspiration, which is published by the Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Agnes. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, that I cannot tell you how excited I am. You are literally my very favorite philosopher, tweeter, and general thinker at the moment. And I have like a terrible intellectual crush on you. So um, <laughs> not not to have any high expectations or anything. Okay. <laughs> so so again, like I'm, I've been totally enjoying reading all of your work, and I especially enjoyed reading your book. Which, by the way, I think it's awesome that you make it available for anyone who wants to download a PDF. Um, that's one hundred percent my bag, um, and <laughs> and I, I just think that's amazing, and. Uh, I, I will confess that in a lot of ways, I feel like as a lawyer and legal scholar, in, it feels like a little bit over my head, but I'm doing my best here. And I was wondering if you could start by explaining for non-philosopher listeners like myself, frankly, right, what exactly we mean by aspiration and why aspiration presents a philosophical problem to your mind. Yeah. So aspiration is the active rational process of acquiring new values. So basically coming to care about things that you didn't used to care about. And uh, like one example would be, you know, developing a passion for a new kind of music, say, um, but, you know, any kind of passion you might develop, um, uh, plus like a lot of, I don't know, a lot of the biggest changes in our lives would qualify, you know, like becoming a parent. I take, take that to be an aspirational process, for example. Um, a lot of career things, even just moving to a foreign country and sort of coming to value the form of life that exists in that country. So these would all be examples. Um, the reason it presents a philosophical problem is that it looks like there's a tension between two sort of features that characterize that sort of a change. And one of, one of the features is that you acquire really like radically new core preferences. So like what you basically care about in life can change as a result of some of these changes, right? So like you can come to, you know, put your children's needs before your own, something like that, right? So that's one feature of it, they're, that they're sort of radically transformative in terms of what you care about. And then the other feature is that um, they don't just happen to you, but you, in some sense, choose and guide and bring them about through your own agency. Now, you might think, well, what's so, um, why is it so hard to reconcile those two features? And the answer is that it looks like like our uh, the, the sort of standard theories of rational decision-making in philosophy involve um, the idea that a rational decision is the one that maximizes the expected satisfaction of your preferences, which is to say of the preferences you already have. And so the question is, how could you rationally acquire new preferences 
how could that be a way of satisfying the ones you already have? Um, how could you set out on a course to come to care about new things if that caring doesn't already kind of answer to some concern that you have? Um, and so it looks like there's sort of sort of pressure to think either these changes are not as big as I was representing them to be, or they're not really things that you choose or guide or bring about. They're more like things that happen to you. And I want to argue, no, you really do. Um, you really are an agent with respect to these changes, and they really are big. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is it fair to say that, like, colloquially speaking, like, part of the problem here is, like, how do I choose to be something different than what I already am? Yeah, exactly. Um Maybe let me add, like, how do you choose to be something different than what you already are? Adding in that the something different involves sort of appreciating things you don't yet appreciate. Because um, it might be like, like, suppose that I am, I don't have a very healthy lifestyle. Um, but suppose that I really, really value having a healthy lifestyle, right? Suppose that's really important to me, but I'm just not following through. And then I could change. I could choose to be a different person, namely a healthy person, right? And that's not so mysterious because even though I'm not that kind of person, I already sort of appreciate the value of being that kind of person. Um, And in the cases I'm interested in, you don't already appreciate the value of it. So you're choosing to like come to appreciate music where you don't already know what's great about it because what's great about it is kind of the intrinsic value of the music that you don't yet appreciate. Well, so how have other people tried to address this problem in the past? I mean, like kind of what other kinds of solutions or perspectives have people offered as to how this kind of aspirational change from being one kind of person into a different kind of person is possible and makes sense? So not a lot of people, surprisingly few people have directly addressed themselves to this problem, but I'll I'll give you two. Um, So, um, uh, uh, Edna Ullman Margulet um, wrote this paper called um, Big Decisions, Opting, Converting, Drifting. I think that's what it's called. I might have gotten those in the wrong order. And she thinks about these kind of, you know, big choices. Mm-hmm. And um, she sort of presents something like the kind of paradox that I've been describing, where it's like, how could you possibly choose to have new preferences? And her answer sort of at the end of the paper is like, well, there's this kind of moment of radical existential choice or something, right? Where you just kind of throw yourself in to something, not really knowing why. Um, so it's a kind of, it's a kind of Sartrean existentialist um, uh, uh, approach to the problem, which is to say almost like we don't have any reason Um, And we don't have any justification for making these sorts of decisions, but that human life at its sort of foundational grounding level just has this aspect of um, um, irrational, absolute free choice. So that's one approach. Um, uh, Another approach is um, uh, Lori Paul has this book, Transformative Experience, and she also describes the problem. She she spends most of the book trying to argue that decision theory as it stands can't solve the problem of acquiring radically new core preferences. Uh, and so she doesn't devote a lot of space to her solution. Um, and so 
you know, I think maybe she's going to do more work on this, but the solution as she presents it in the book is that, um, you might, um, though you don't sort of like have any reason for, um, say choosing to become a parent or choosing to move to a foreign country, um, you might, um, have this kind of second order preference to have new preferences. So you might be the sort of person who wants to have new preferences, whatever they might be. And so you could be satisfying that second order preference through making one of these choices. The weird thing about her view, and oddly, I think this is a feature of Edna Margot's view too, um, except Edna Margot doesn't even think that we have to speak of justification here, but Paul does think in some sense you can, you can be justified through this second order, like just wanting to want new things. Right. Um, the weird thing is that, um, whatever would like then justify, say you're deciding to become a parent that would also justify you're deciding to become a nun and you're deciding to move to a foreign country and you're deciding to go to college. And like, because it's just the preference to have new preferences and you could have new preferences in like a whole bunch of different ways. Right. And so it's a really weird view that, um, only justifies these big decisions at the super abstract level of, you know, wanting a change almost. I mean, it seems like this decision theory approach has a kind of very sort of consequentialist bent to it. But it seems like at least my takeaway from your observations uh, and and kind of comments on some of these uh, other approaches, it's hard to see how you can have a consequentialist opinion about becoming something you aren't already experiencing. Yeah, good. I mean, I I think that is sort of the core problem is that if you think about all choice in terms of, in some sense, maximizing utility, right, where utility boils down to the satisfaction of preferences, then it's really, really hard to squeeze these sorts of changes into that model. I think, um, so my view is, like, um, I think that Paul takes this to be a grounds for criticizing decision theory. Like, oh, look, decision theory is in some sense incomplete because it can't make sense of some of these choices. I actually don't think there's a problem with decision theory. Um, So I think that I think that is the best theory of how to make decisions understood as kind of these synchronic like moments of will where you're like, do I want this or this? Um, my sort of framework here is that these kinds of changes can't be understood as just choices or decisions, that they are stretched out over time in a way that decisions aren't, and that they have to be understood instead as like a learning process. Um, So that what's going on with you when you're say becoming a mother or becoming a lover of classical music is not that at some moment in time, you're like, now I will be interested in this. And then as a result of that, you're somehow magically interested. Rather, it's a lot like how you might learn anything else, even on a theoretical level, where like it takes time and there are mistakes made along the way and you don't know exactly where you're going and you're sort of guided by a vague but increasingly clear sense of where it is that you're going. And so in my view, the mistake is not to think that decision theory needs to operate with some different framework that is less consequentialist, say. But that decision theory just can't capture all of the rationality in human life because not everything is a decision. Um, 
and that these sorts of changes are not best modeled as decisions, but they're that it's um, they're more accurately modeled if we sort of allow them to take up as much time as they really do take up, which is like not a moment, but like usually years. Um, and then we try to think about, okay, what is the sort of form of like rationality or agency or thought or intention that is um, spread out over time in that way, rather than being like a moment of will or decision. And that's sort of what my book is about. Well, so if we're thinking about the way people engage in aspiration and in decision-making in this kind of longer-term process, like how should we conceptualize the nature of agency? Like what kind of – what kinds of like actions or what, what kinds of decisions do people make – that sort of reflect the kind of agency that you're talking about? So I think there are a lot of different features of it, but maybe the core one is this persistent sense that you don't know what you're doing, (laughs) Um, where like, um, that is, I would almost say it's something like a self-conscious pretentiousness. Like you have this sense that there's this thing that you're after, right? And, um, you know, like, say you want to appreciate a certain kind of music, right? And you don't appreciate it. Like, when you're at the um, concert hall, you're kind of falling asleep, you have to force yourself to listen. And you're sort of embarrassed about that, um, in that you feel you're not living up to the standard, the standard that you've set for yourself of what it would be to sort of respond to this value appropriately. And so you do things and you're all the things that you're doing and you might do things that are kind of like a little bit lame and embarrassing. Like you incentivize yourself. You're like, look, if I make it through this without falling asleep, then I get to do this. Right. Um, And sort of what that, what those kind of processes reflect is the idea that you, you can be on to the value of something that you can tell you're not fully onto and can tell that you're not responding sort of adequately or sufficiently to. And it's kind of amazing that that's possible because you might think, look, either you get the value or you don't, right? And if you get it, then you'll respond to it. And if you don't, then you won't. And I think we're very um, suspicious of and critical of pretentiousness. Um, we're like, oh, this person is acting like they care about something, but they don't really care about it. And so then we're, we're also suspicious of it in ourselves, right? But I think aspiration essentially involves pretentiousness because it involves kind of getting a little bit ahead of yourself in the sense of like being committed to a value you don't fully appreciate and kind of acting like you appreciate it and sort of trying to find your way there somewhat blindly. Um, so I think th- those are the most characteristic, the most, the most characteristic sort of um, um, mood or something of aspiration is this sense of um, like a kind of inadequacy um, in how one is responding to something. And then that manifests in all sorts of different ways. Like one of them is just like, you'll be on the lookout for mentors, for example, right? Because like there, there are going to be people out there who are in a better position with respect to this value than you are usually. Okay. Um, not all cases, but usually. And so you'll, you'll kind of like want their help. You want, you'll want help from people in a variety of ways. Um, and, but also I think um, uh, you, you, for a lot of people being aspirational correlates with being competitive because if you can sort of measure yourself against someone else that gives you a sense of like, I'm making progress. 
Um, um, but yeah, also just feeling bad about yourself, um, feeling kind of guilty. Um, um, and, um, maybe more than anything, like if somebody asks you, if they ask you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like your answers never really seem good enough to you. So in a way, I mean, it almost seems like the way that we know we're actually changing ourselves rather than just changing without agency is the almost kind of artificiality or falseness associated with the effort to change ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Um, um, I think that like um, it would be, it's, I, I don't think I can imagine a case of aspiration in which the person just feels um, totally um, natural in what they're doing. And one way to think about it is like the idea of second nature. Something can become second nature to you, right? But if you're aspiring, it isn't yet second nature. <laughs> and so it's going to be unnatural. It's at the end of the process that it would sort of seem natural. And along the way, it seems forced and artificial. Well, so are there... I mean, in your mind, ways in which there are some ways in which people change that are aspirational changes, like motivated changes, and other ways that people change that maybe are not aspirational changes, like ones that happen to them rather than ones that they cause? Absolutely. So I think, and there are also ones that they cause that are not aspirational. <laughs> so, um, um, so like if you think about um like do you know this idea of nudges right like choice architecture sure yeah it has sunscreen yeah, and so exactly. on yeah. so those would be like cases where you can sort of arrange someone's world or environment um in ways that you know can influence their choices in the short term and possibly also in the long term right um so um those are ways of being changed but also more broadly right if you think about I don't know if you just think about the fact if you if you think that there is something like a um, what's a good example, maybe like accent or something, you know, <laughs> like people have different accents in different places. And a lot of that is just going to be like they're shaped by their environment. Um, like, OK, here's a here's a funny example um, there. The, and you you won't know this because you haven't heard many philosophers give talks. And I don't know whether law professors do this, too. But there's this thing like, you know, poet voice philosopher voice and if you hear philosophers give talks they have this just this intonation this way of talking and it's a weird thing because I don't have it and I never self-consciously set out not to acquire it I like I only learned that I didn't have it like a year or two into being a professor when somebody observed me they're like you don't sound like anyone else so I um <laughs> and but like most philosophers have this thing and like, it must be this thing, right? Where you go through grad school and you hear people talking and you just, your voice and your intonation and your just your patterns of speech just come to, you know, um, resemble this model that you're, it's not self-conscious. It's not particularly desirable or bad. I mean, it's just like one way of talking. Right. Um, but um, um, it, so that there, that would be a case of just being shaped or influenced by your environment, right? Um, and I think the other thing is I think we are also, um, um, we shape and influence ourselves in a lot of ways that are not aspirational. Basically, everything that falls under the genre of self-help would be that. 
Because self-help, especially when it goes in the direction of sort of like tips and tricks and like, um, you know, what are some small things you can do that will like, I don't know, you know, time management and diet and all of that stuff. Um, um, that is all like, um, how can I take for granted that everything that I currently value is correct and right and just make my habits and activities and patterns of response align with that better. So I'm changing myself, but I'm not changing what I care about. Um, That's like the example I gave earlier about like being healthier when I already value being healthy, but I'm just, I'm not conforming to that value that I already have. Right. So that's what I call self-cultivation in the book. Um, And I think that people very, very much gravitate towards self-cultivation over aspiration. That is, they prefer to engage in and see themselves as engaging in self-cultivation over aspiration because self-cultivation gives you a lot more control over what you're doing. And like it, it, the self-cultivator knows why they're doing what they're doing. So they don't sound stupid the way that the aspirant sounds stupid. Like they don't, they're not unable to explain the point of what they're doing. Um, so yeah, I think that people can be shaped by their environments non-aspirationally, and then they can also shape themselves non-aspirationally. Well, so how do you distinguish between like aspirational choices that people want and like choices that people make that are like terrible choices, like self changes that are bad self changes or ones that they don't aspire to? Yeah, good. So one of the maybe like, um, most um, shocking claims in my book, um, is that, um, you can't aspire to value something unless that thing is actually valuable. Um, and it's almost a terminological point, but I didn't start out with this view. Like I started out writing the book, not thinking that was true. Um, and, um, I ended up arguing myself into it by trying to argue that it was wrong and finding (laughs) it impossible to do so. Um, so, Um, basically I think that aspiration is a form of value learning. So it means like you're learning to value some new thing that you didn't used to value before, but learning is like veridical. Like I can learn math, right? I can't learn alchemy. Like I can, because you know, what I've quote unquote learned is not real learning because there's nothing there to learn. Right. Um, it's a little bit like remembering, right? I can only remember something if it actually happened. I can seem to myself to remember something that didn't actually happen, but I can't remember what didn't actually happen. Um, so I think that um, we can only like see someone else as aspiring to something if we actually see that thing as good. And so an example I give in the book is the sort of um, quote unquote aspiring gangster Um, so you might think, no, look, someone could aspire to become a gangster, um, where let's take it for granted being a gangster is not good. Right. And I started out thinking, yeah, of course, someone could aspire to become a gangster. But then I tried to like tell the story of someone aspiring to become a gangster. And what I found, um, was that I couldn't distinguish it from another story that wasn't aspirational. Um, namely a story of somebody who, Um, didn't actually aspire to value anything new, but just had a certain kind of um, like 
ambitious attachment to certain extrinsic goods like, say, wealth or money or fame, um, that where they are, they perfectly well appreciated those things at the beginning. So they're not aspiring, right? Um, and they're just figuring out ways to acquire those things. And um, what I found was that, like, um, if I um, if I think of the thing that the person is, so to speak, trying to acquire as not actually being a good thing, then when I tell the aspirational story, what I end up doing is telling a story about how they were just finding means, um, finding sort of like instrumental pathways to acquiring things that they already valued. Um, and what's sort of interesting about that is it's going to be very relative to whoever's making the judgment. So it's like, suppose that I'm, um, an a religious person and you're a religious person. And so you have what you call these religious aspirations, but I don't believe in religion. Right. And I don't, I, I think that it's all like a sham. Then I am going to be incapable of seeing you as aspiring. Instead, what I'll be like is, oh, there are certain comforts that you needed. You know, you needed to um, kind of protect yourself from difficult truths or maybe you there's certain kind of community you wanted or right. And then I'll come up with this theory or this explanation of what you're doing where um, I'm essentially providing a non-aspirational model of what you're doing um, because I don't believe you're actually learning anything because I don't think there's anything there to be learned. I could, of course, be wrong about all that. <laughs> That's what I mean by saying it's relativistic, right? Because it could be that I'm just blind to it because as a matter of fact, religion is correct. And so I can't see it. Um, and so the point is not that there is any kind of objective ordering of what's, val what's valuable or not that sort of stands outside the book. The point is that each of us values some things and we don't value other things. And we can appreciate the aspirations of others to the extent that we see what they're after as being in some sense valuable. So there's going to be just some aspirations that like you're not in a good position to appreciate because you don't value those things. Um, so you won't even, it's sort of like those aspirations won't come into view for you very well. You and I met based on our shared interest in, in plagiarism and plagiarism I would even norms, love, love of plagiarism um and so i mean i kind of i i, I gotta ask like how does aspiration to your mind fit in relation to thinking about like plagiarism and the values associated with plagiarism and at least your way of thinking about why plagiarism is interesting and something worth thinking about. I mean, is like plagiarism an aspirational value or is thinking differently about literary ownership an aspirational value? Like, you know, how would that fit in relation to the kind of the, especially like the paradigm you just presented of like the religious and the non-religious person? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I haven't thought about this before, but so this will be my first stab at it. I haven't thought about connecting these two things, but I think that one thing that the defense of plagiarism allows you to emphasize is that um, the kind of value of ideas does not lie in how they can pay you back in some other coin. So um, suppose that like I come up with um, uh an idea. Um, suppose I'm Pythagoras, okay, and I come up with the Pythagorean theorem, right? And 
Um, and now the question is like, how do we understand um, the um, the sort of value calculus there of like what I've done? And one way to understand it is like, well, in coming up with the Pythagorean theorem, um, I have produced this sort of value um, maybe for other people or whatever, but like I haven't yet, I'm Pythagoras, I haven't yet gotten payback for it. I haven't yet um, received a benefit for it. And the only way that I can receive such a benefit is, um, you know, in, if, if in some sense I, I get credit for it and other people don't get credit for it, right? And so the idea of um, uh, ownership and credit, it's almost like it's predicated on the thought that, um, um, that on, on, on something like a non-aspirational conception of what it would be to be Pythagoras, right? Because you might think, no, look, what it is to be Pythagoras is to think that the value of what you're doing lies in the understanding that you get and in the idea itself. Um, and so you have all the value you want by having come up with the idea. Right. Um, there, it doesn't need to pay you back in any other coin. Um, and so that that would be one. Um, uh, one thought is um, that there's a way in which plagiarism norms seem to suggest a kind of skepticism about whether people value ideas. I like that. Well, so the other thing that hit me while I was reading your book was whether the kind of concept of aspiration that you talk about in relation to individuals could be potentially generalized and thought about in a kind of social context. In other words, can societies aspire in the way that individuals aspire? And if so, what would that mean? Yeah, I've like, I've kind of posed myself this question, but so when I, I, I put it in a limited way, I haven't really thought about it. Like when I, I pose it to myself on a number of occasions and I make no progress on it. Um, I find it really hard to think about what it would mean for societies to aspire. Um, so, um, but maybe like, um, um, I guess, I guess like here's, here's one kind of bit of sense I can make of that. I think that um, there's something like, so I think if I had to pick what is the best thing that human beings have ever done, <laughs> like what's the best invention, what's the best work of art, like what is the greatest human achievement, okay? For me, that's a really easy question. The answer is human rights, <laughs> um, the theory of human rights. And, um, you know, in... Like, and I would say like that theory gets kind of its full flowering of its articulation really in the enlightenment. But of course it extends backwards. Um, you know, there are versions of it in the ancient world, but like very importantly, it's not really present in the ancient world. Like Aristotle thought that slavery was not only okay, but actually like morally good in certain ways. Um, and so, okay, so here's this big idea, right? But like, if you look at, sort of how this idea kind of like um, unspools or something over time, right? In some ways, we're still working on it, right? We're still working on, on the idea of extending rights to everyone and what it means to kind of respect the dignity of every person. Um, so that, you know, like, 
um, women's rights, gay rights, gay marriage. Like these are recent um, um, kind of developments, right, of the idea of human rights. And, you know, a lot of people like might say animal rights, like is the next frontier. Um, and um, then there are also, I think, a really underemphasized way of thinking about rights is like the rights of future generations. Like what about non-existent people who are going to exist? What kind of rights do they have, right? So um, I think that um, you could see this as aspirational in the sense that there is this idea and the idea, the seeds of the idea are in some sense present in Plato and Aristotle. I think that really, if you had to give the origin of the idea I would, I would not say Plato and Aristotle, I would say Christianity. Um, uh, but, um, but, you know, it, it sort of really took its sweet time getting, um, thought through and, um, and then even, I would say in some sense it was thought through already, you know, when you hit Kant, but like, it hasn't been fully, like all the implications have not been worked out. Right. And so that's a sense in which I think, you know, there's been this kind of aspirational project of getting to the bottom of a certain idea where that idea is also at the same time, a kind of value, right? The value of human beings, like we're trying to understand the value of human beings. Uh, and I do have a kind of, in some sense, like rosy, positive story of like, we're getting better at it. Mm. Well, so in in closing, Agnes, I mean, I can't help but wonder what role normativity plays in your theory of aspiration and to what extent we need a normative theory to sort of evaluate what we're doing when we do aspiration. And, and, and I guess part of me like wonders like, you know, how do we know that what we're doing today with human rights is better than Aristotle as opposed to just different from Aristotle? So one way to think about the question, is Aristotle's morality better than ours, um, is to say, let's try to take like a sideways view and look at both of them and somehow compare them by some metric. Like, like in which world are people happier or something, or which world are more preferences satisfied? Um, and I think that um, uh, that kind of comparison doesn't make a lot of sense. Um Part of it is that um, they're just very different worlds. Like it just in terms of like how many people could be in a city or a state, you know, it's like very small in Aristotle's world and um, much bigger in ours. So we live in very different worlds and we have very different understandings of what it would be to be happy. Um, so there isn't any kind of outside comparison, I think, that we can make. So in that sense, if, if saying Aristotle is wrong and we're right would be a matter of sort of taking a step outside our moral system and evaluating it, I think we just can't do that. Um, but, um, but I also think it's important that the fact that we can't do that is not a sign that morality is somehow relative or arbitrary. It's actually a sign that morality is ineliminable, like that our moral system is so deeply baked into how we think about everything, right? That we can't shed it and then be like, okay, which one do we want? Right. It's, it's just not, um, um, it's not a, um, a kind of, um, optional modification of our thinking. It's like part of what it is for us to think ethically is that we think in terms of people having rights. Um, so that's part of like what, um, 
what qualifies something as ethical thinking is that it involves acknowledging people's rights. And, um, and so I think like for us, the question is like, how do we perfect our ethical thinking? How do we make it better? Right. How from the inside, like, where is it, um, inconsistent? What have we failed to appreciate? What things are there that we can sort of see out of the corner of our eye are kind of valuable, but we're not really appreciating them enough. That would be sort of aspirational. Um, but, um, but I, I, I guess I think that, um, that's, that's sort of the best we can do in terms of comparing ourselves to Aristotle. Interestingly, Aristotle would have agreed with that methodological point. <laughs> that is, he didn't think you could um, acquire an ethical system by looking at it from outside. He thought, no, look, ethics is something that you're taught as a child. Like your ethical view is very much a product of the, your habituation. Um, and um, because it has to become grown into your sensibility, to your feelings. Um, uh, you have to actually care about the things that are ethically significant, right? So it's not a theory, it's a way of living. Um, and so I think that he would he would sort of um, um, not expect of us <laughs> that we be able to have a kind of justification for him that would um, allow someone in a kind of indifferent way to choose between the two systems. Um, but I think that um, essentially insofar as we want to do anything like aspire, um, make choices, um, decide things in our lives, insofar as we want to do any of those things, um, we just lean on a normative system. So there's no, there's no way to do any of those things without bringing in concepts of good and bad. And, we don't have any way of, you know, kind of immediately cognitively revolutionizing those concepts. What we have is like slow aspirational processes of, of improving them. Well, so I can't, I can't help myself and not make that the closing because I have another question that's burning in my head, which is Agnes. I mean, if that's true, how can it be that the two of us can question the legitimacy of plagiarism norms, which are the most kind of profoundly foundational and unquestionable ethical values of our profession. Good. So um, I think, I think that um, it's because there's actually an inconsistency there that we're picking up on. Um, that is, we are not um, trying to shed our normative skin and jump into some totally different value system, right? We, um, um, we are sort of hearing like, well, a kind of hypocrisy because we're hearing a certain sort of value language about um, the value of ideas, the importance of generosity, um, the, the intrinsic value of understanding and knowledge. Um, the, I mean, the whole idea of a university, right? Is that, um, certain goods are not zero sum. Like if I know something and I tell it to you and now you know it, that I have not been harmed. I haven't lost anything at all. In fact, I may gain because um, you may like kind of bounce back at me and, and help me think about that thing in a new way. So we're in an institution that is by its very nature, by its very existence, sort of committed to this special, most non-zero sum of all values right? Which is the value of ideas. Um, and then we kind of see, we're kind of feeling this, um, um, this kind of 
awkwardness of that institution's being um, placed into a kind of commercial reality where um, the thought is like, well, no, we have to find a way to, to, to turn this into a zero-sum game somehow, right? We have to find a way to make my having an idea your loss, right? Um, and it's like, well, I had it first and you didn't have it. And so the fact that I had it is like bad for you. Um, and, and, and so like a, a university is like this, is like this um, um, thing that's sort of tearing itself apart over this kind of um, uh, problem. And I think that, um, you know, even, even there, like, it's not clear, right, what the solution is. Um, like, it's not clear that there's some one change that can be made that would totally solve this problem. But I do think that what we're trying to point out is that there really is a problem here. There's an internal tension or inconsistency in two ways in which we're thinking about ideas. Um, and that we would do a lot of things much better if we were more aware of this inconsistency and we made small changes to improve it. And like one of them that I can think of just in my field is just like how much people value publishing and how little they value reading, like the things that are published, right? Like everything is about like pub getting a publication and getting a line in your CV, right? And having something accepted to a journal is like so high status, so so important, right? Um, be and, and, and there's this weird way in which the journals become this kind of arm of the promotion um, committee, right? And that's just a really weird thing to happen to knowledge, where like you might have thought that the way it would work is that the 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 it's almost like the end of the process is publication rather than reading. Um, and I, I you know I've been thinking about this because it really bothers me and like I'm like I, I I read journal articles philosophy journal articles from like 1910 1920 they are so much more fun to read. Um, they're so engaging. They're, 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 they take on big picture questions. They like, they're much, much less worried about the question. What is the tiny thing that I'm adding to the field? What is the gap I'm filling? You know? And I think that, um, so I do think that it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of question about like marginal improvements. And I think we could move a little more in that direction of, um, having philosophical work that is at least somewhat geared towards the, uh, the, the reader rather than like the journal. Mm. Well, Agnes, thanks so much for coming on the show. I couldn't agree more with your perspective, especially as expressed toward the end. And not only do I believe in reading, but I believe in listening as well. And listening to you has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Stole a cup 
sky Said that he's still like her All I could say was, all I could say was, all I could say was Why, why, oh why, oh why Why is it always like this? Either you're too mean or you're too nice Said I even cooked a breakfast Fun, then it's breaking your heart Besides, she said I'm 